0: Church, if you have your copy of God's Word, you should know where to turn. Go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 1. That is in the Old Testament. It's right after 1 Samuel. You guessed it. Alright, 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're actually going to be reading verses 17 through 27 this morning. In a sermon entitled, How the Mighty Have Fallen. First uh, or 2 Samuel, I'm sorry chapter 1, verses 17 through 27. If you found your place there, would you do me the honor and privilege of standing for the reading of God's word, acknowledging that this is the word of the Lord, that he has spoken it to us, his people, and we are acknowledging that in reverence by standing. Second Samuel 1, 17 through 27. Then David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Joshua. Verse 19 The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war Perished. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, you have created us to be dependent people for the very purpose of bringing glory and honor to the name of Jesus and enjoying you forever. Father, how much more in our fallen state are we dependent um, on your every mercy to us? Lord, would you visit us with your kindness this morning? Would you pour out your spirit upon us that we might hear your word proclaimed? Father, I pray for those who have yet come to know you as love for the proclamation of your son, Jesus Christ, who are here this morning. Would you open their eyes and ears so that he might become beautiful in their sight, that they might cling to him by faith? And Father, would you continue to do what you so faithfully do here each week, and that is visit us with your grace. Cause us to continue to stand firm in the faith, to cling to our only hope, your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I'm sure many of you are probably familiar ...with the story of the Brave 300. Probably far too many of you are familiar with it because of the horrible movie that was produced by Hollywood a decade or so back. But regardless, I'm talking about that event that took place in Thermopylae in 480 BC... ...when King Xerxes and his Persian army rose up against the Greeks. If you remember what happened in that story... King Xerxes and his army, they're marching up the coastline of Greece, and they're hemmed in by a mountain on one side, and they have to go through this very narrow pass. And so King Xerxes sent forward messengers into every city in Greece, commanding them to give him some land and some water, thereby recognizing him as their sovereign king over the land and the seas, and receiving him as their own. Of course, you know the story that the Greeks refused to do so. They decided to defend themselves, resolved to defend themselves against these invaders. And so the Spartan army led by King Leonidas took thousands of men to go and defend that pass, to not allow Xerxes and his army to be able to pass through. And and that's actually what they did for quite some time, even though they were easily overwhelmed by the number of the Persian army, they held the pass. What they did is they positioned themselves in the most narrow part of that pass and then interlocked with spears and shields, they repelled wave after wave after wave of the Persian army. In fact, it is reported that there were so many arrows fired from the Persian camp that they were so thick they blotted out the sun, to which Leonidas is reported to have been saying, uh, responding to that, he said, all the better, we fight better in the shade. Finally, King Xerxes sent forward his 10,000 very best troops known as the 10,000 Immortals, and yet they fared no better against the Spartan army, and still they held the pass. After Two days of attacks, they held the pass, and yet there was a betrayer in their midst. One of their own countrymen made his way to the Persian camp to sell out his very own, leading King Xerxes to a narrow footpath behind the narrow pass where they would hem in the Spartan army on both sides. And even though there was a guard on that narrow footpath, they were easily overwhelmed by the Persian onslaught. Enough of them, however, got away to escape and warned King Leonidas that the Persians were coming and there was nothing he could do to stop them. Leonidas sent most of his men home, retaining only 300, knowing that it would be their final stand, knowing that they would die attempting to defend their people. Xerxes and his army came forward and the Spartans stood fast, but indeed, one by one, eventually, they fell. When their spears broke, they stood side by side, fighting with swords and daggers, eventually even their fist. But eventually, they fell, each and every one. The mighty fell that day. Now, it is worth noting that they did detain Xerxes long enough for the Spartan navy to come around and repel Xerxes back into Asia, at least for a bit, But many years later, there's a monument raised in that pass of Thermopylae, and these words were written on it. Pause, traveler. Ere you go your way. Then tell how, Spartan to the last, we fought and fell. Do note, however, that they did fall. Maybe the mightiest warriors of all time, and some of the mightiest battles of all times, and yet, they fell. See, that's one thing I think David's lament actually teaches us. And it's kind of the main idea of what I'd like to bring before you today. And it's this. The mighty always fall. Did you notice that? The mighty always fall. Sooner or later, the mighty always fall. If you are familiar with history, you're well aware of this. Why? Because the mighty are mortal. It's part of what we learned today from our passage. So let's just jump right into it and see how it unfolds. We notice that there's actually a change in genre here. Remember last week we picked up in 2 Samuel 1 which is mostly what we would call a historical narrative for the genre. And what we saw is David's response to the messenger regarding Saul's death. He mourned the death of his adversary who had hunted him down like a dog. He responded to the death of his enemy like a man after God's own heart. He even executed justice and righteousness against the man who claimed to have slain him. And so here we have a transition from a historical narrative to Hebrew poetry, a lamentation to be specific. And there are three things I want us to notice about this lamentation. The first is the educational importance of this lamentation. I know that's a point that just jumps right out at you, isn't it? You're like, whoa, I'm excited about this one. Uh, the, education, the educational importance of this lamentation. I say that because this lamentation is introduced in verses 17 and 18 of our text, right? Verse 17 tells, us that it's a lament of David. And then verse 18 says that David actually commanded that this be taught to all the children of Judah. I think I would argue from the onset here, from the very beginning, uh, that we need to be taught and we need to remind ourselves to be taught to remember significant events, I think this verse teaches us that, that we need to be reminded that we should be taught and teach significant events. In fact, God's people need to remember significant events in history. It's important that we do this. In fact, look what verse 18 says in our text. It says, and he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is it written in the book of Joshua. See, this is not simply just David's creative expression for the benefit of his psychological and emotional healing. It might have provided that for him, but but that's not really the point. This is not simply an outlet for David's grief. David understands that this lament has instructional value for the people of God. It is meant to teach. One might say it should be taught because it teaches. And we also see that this is instructive teaching of educational value. We see it in another way. Not only did David command that this uh, letter be taught to the people of Judah, this lament be taught to the people of Judah, but it's also recorded for us in the book of Joshua. I know that probably means a lot to you, right? No, it doesn't. Didn't mean a whole lot to me before I studied it this week. What's the significance of the book of Joshua? What even is the book of Joshua? And why is it in here? And why are we talking about it this Sunday morning? Well, this book only is mentioned one other time in all of Scripture. And that takes place actually in Joshua chapter 10. What's happening in Joshua 10? Well, in Joshua 10, the Gibeonites are being attacked by the king of the Amorites. Uh, The Gibeonites had actually deceived Joshua and Israel into making a covenant with them, even though they were commanded by God not to make a covenant with any of their peoples. And yet, Gibeonites have now been incorporated into Israel, and so they call out for Joshua and Israel to come and rescue them from their attackers. And of course, Joshua and Israel come and rescue them. Actually, the Lord rescues them because the Lord kills more with hailstones than Joshua and Israel do with their arrows. But regardless, to respond to that, Joshua actually writes in Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. 13 This, which is Hebrew poetry, he says, Sun stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Joshua? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Most scholars believe that the book of Joshua, it was something that contained an early collection of poetry, commemorating specific, significant events in the history of Israel. Events that are to be memorialized through poetry, teaching Israel their history, and reminding them of the mighty ones who have gone before them. Because the stories we learn and the stories we remember shape the stories that we live So David's lament apparently qualifies as such a story. This is a poetic record of a significant event. So it is added to the book of Joshua. Okay, so not only do we notice the educational, instructive importance of this lament, but the second thing I want us to note is the historical significance of this lament. This is the historical significance of this lament. Because this is big news. And this lament attempts to communicate a big news very significantly in a very significant number of ways. And in fact, the first way it communicates this event is historically significant is through the immediate impact it has. Look at the immediate impact that this lament had. For instance, when this news is heard in the land of Philistines, it's going to cause a celebration. Dancing in the street... It says, the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. We also see in verse 24, the immediate impact in Israel is weeping among the land. The daughters of Israel are instructed to weep after the death of Saul. The news that causes rejoicing in the land of the Philistines will cause weeping in the land of Israel. In fact, this event is so significant that it even provokes the cursing of Mount Gilboa where the event took place. Did you notice that in verse 21? The lament even just curses the mountain where this event took place. In fact, read that along with me. In verse 21, it says, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you, nor fields or offerings. Of course, we also know that this lament is historically significant because that any death of a king is significant. Right? The death of any king has always been historically significant. I don't know if you remember the death of the king of Thailand. Some would argue the longest ruling or reigning monarch to ever have ruled. He died in 2016 and he ruled for 70 years. He reigned for 70 years. Thailand, to commemorate his death, instituted a year-long mourning for the entire nation because the death of a king is significant. But we also need to remember that Saul wasn't just simply another king. This was God's king. The king God had chosen, the Lord's anointed, given the significant and specific task of ruling over the people of Israel. He was to administer the rule of Yahweh over the people of Yahweh. This was Israel's first king. But oh, how the mighty have fallen. Israel has lost her head. The monarchy project is being grounded even before it barely got off the ground. But we must remember also that this lament's not simply about Saul. This lament's also about Saul's son, Jonathan. In fact, I think it's very significant here that this lament gives Jonathan the place of pride. This lament, uh, David gives Jonathan a place of pride in this particular lament. In verse 26, David's praise and commendation for his friend Jonathan could hardly be loftier. In addition, the shift from perspective to first person, I and you language communicates David's affection and reverence for his friend Jonathan. And rightly so. Jonathan was a tremendous friend to David. Jonathan's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness were unparalleled in this point to David's life, except by the Lord himself. So to the end... Jonathan was a consummate friend. A God-fearing and upright man. But oh, how the mighty have fallen. This lament does something else that's historically significant as well. It instructs us to remember the fact that Saul and Jonathan were strong and able warriors. This lament is a reminder that Saul and Jonathan were were mighty warriors. They were. They were mighty warriors warriors. They were mighty men, great warriors, the best Israel had to offer. In our common vernacular, we would say they were the best of the best. After all, we know that Saul was like a giant among the Israelites, wasn't he? From shoulders upwards, he was taller than all the Israelites. And do, do you remember what the people said when they saw him called forth in chapter 10, verse 24? They said, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? That there is no one like him among all the people. In other words, Saul was a stud. This was a massive man. This was an intimidating figure. And I'm going to go ahead and go out on a limb and say, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. Like father, like son. Jonathan likely wasn't too far behind. This lament makes a big deal about the mightiness of Saul and Jonathan. And as we've seen Now, the historical and educational significance of this lament, this is where I primarily want to spend our time, on its lessons. What does this lament teach us? What are the lessons of this lament? Indeed, Saul and Jonathan were mighty in bow and sword. Their bow and sword did not turn back. It was the cause of the destruction of many of their enemies, according to verse 23. But did you know there are even more significant lessons that we can find in this lament? And the first is this. The sword devours. The sword devours. It devours everyone. There are actually three lessons here, and they're all interrelated. In fact, they're probably just three different ways of saying the exact same thing. And the first thing is, the sword devours. Look at what it says in verse 23 of our text. Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided... They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. That word stronger by the way. It's the literal exact same word for the word mighty. Recurs over and over again. They were stronger than lions. Swifter than eagles. And they're deader than doornails. That's just added parentheses there. The very best of the best. Very deadest of the dead. Why? Because the sword Devours. It's really kind of the point of the lament. And what I mean by that is you don't lament living people. In general, Lamentations is for the dead. Something you do after destruction. The book of Lamentations was not written when Jerusalem was secure and safe. It lies in ruins when Lamentations is written. We lament loss, not gain. We lament failures, not success. We lament death, not life. And this is a lament signaling that we have just encountered curse, not blessing. But why would I say that the first lesson is that the sword devours? Thank you so much for asking because I'm going to explain that. Wow. Love your interaction this morning. Part of what this lament actually does is this lament actually points backwards and forwards. It points backwards in regards to just a little subtle clue that I mentioned last week. When we find Saul on the battlefield, what's Saul doing in his last dying breath? Do you remember? He's leaning upon his sword. But looking forward to this, it also prepares us for what takes place in chapter 2. Well, what do we find in chapter 2? This is going to take a little digging. Actually, it's going to take a little Hebrew work. And so, I'm um, thankful for Blue Letter Bible that they speak Hebrew for me. But I want you to pay attention to 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19, and how our lament begins. That very first phrase, you won't see it in the English. You're not even going to be close to seeing it in the English. But, but I'm going to explain it to you in the Hebrew. In 19, it says, "...the beauty of Israel is slain on your high places." Many commentators actually think that this is referring to Jonathan, that David's referring to Jonathan, because that word for beauty is most often translated as the word gazelle. Okay, that's Hebrew, okay, all right? I know that they don't sound alike in English, but that's the case. In other words, they, say, they think it literally says, the gazelle of Israel is slain on your high places. And so how is that pointing forward? Well, I want you just to look right to chapter 2, when we meet a man by the name of Asahel. Asahel, in verse 18, it says this. And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. Do you want to guess what that word gazelle is in the Hebrew? the very exact same word in chapter 1 verse 19. Go look it up. They are word for word the exact same. Now who in the world is Asahel and why is that significant? I've never heard of him. What does he do? Well apparently he was pretty swift dude okay. He was as swift as a wild gazelle and what we find Asahel doing in chapter 2 is he's pursuing a man by the name of Abner. He's pursuing him relentlessly in fact so much that Abner keeps turning around and telling Asehel bro don't do this. Stop pursuing me. He actually tells him, Abner tells Asehel, uh, pick on somebody of your own size. And, and by that, he means I'm much more man than you can handle, Asehel. Don't do this. Right now, I'm in danger of preaching a sermon that I'm going to preach uh, in probably next month. But the good news is maybe you'll forget it by then, right? So it'll be like new. That's tend to be how it works on occasion. But regardless, here we have Asehel. He's relentlessly pursuing Abner. And the way the narrative unfolds is he is doing this intentionally. He's a potentially pursuing him, and he does it over and over again, and and Abner keeps turning around saying, hell, don't do this, bro. You don't want none. Don't do this until finally Abner turns around, and he takes the butt of his spear, and he sticks it through hell's belly. That's a lot of force, by the way, if you stick your spear in an enemy to the fact where not the point of the spear is sticking out, but the butt of the spear is sticking out. That's a strong man, uh, Abner was probably a stud too So there's Hell, and he's fallen He's died and actually everybody who walks by him They stop and they look at him The narrator says that What are they stopping and looking at? Well, see, there's a lesson to be learned. The story keeps going. They continue to pursue Abner and his men until finally, in verse 25, Abner calls Asahel's brother, Joab, hoping that Joab and his remaining other brother will be wiser than his youngest brother. And look at what Abner says to them in chapter 2, verse 26. Shall the sword devour forever Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? Shall the sword devour forever? David's lament puts an emphasis here because he's pointing forward to what we're going to read in chapter 2. In fact, if I could summarize verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1, you know how I'd do it? If I could paraphrase it here, I would say this. Their sword devoured much of their enemy, but in the end their enemy's sword devoured them. That's the little men over Saul and Jonathan. And and isn't that always how it goes, though? In the end, the latter end, it will be bitter for you. And by the way, that should sound familiar to those of you who know your New Testament. Makes you think of Jesus confronting Peter after he cut off the servant's ear in the garden. What did Jesus say in Matthew 26 52? Put your sword in its place for all that take the sword will perish by the sword. And then look at the end of our lament. Look at the very end of verse 27. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Jesus understood and taught his disciples that the weapons of war will all perish in the end. Looking backwards, it might be even worth mentioning that in the cursed blessing or the blessed curse of Esau, we read that he will live by the sword. This becomes a recurring theme. So that's the first lesson is that the sword devours. Lesson two is closely related to the first. The sword devours and not by might will men prevail. Not by might will men prevail. Prevail. Listen, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Brackets this entire lament. Did you notice how many times we said it there? In fact, the word mighty occurs at least five times in our text. And we already said that when it says stronger than a lion, really in the Hebrew, that's mightier than a lion. So six, six times this lament or this, this word mighty is used in this lament. David saying, Here are the mighty. And how the mighty have fallen. In fact, the name of this lament is actually given to us in verse 18. Look, at with, look at your, with your eyes at verse 18 with me uh, right now. Look at what it says. In fact, you'll notice in the text, if you have the song of written in italics, do you have that? You know what that means? That means that's been added in there by translators to help it make more sense in the English. Literally, verse 18 simply says, Teach the children of Judah the bow. Now, commentators have discussion. They go back and forth about this. They're wondering, is is David saying that we need to teach the children how to use the bow? But most commentators would agree that he's simply conveying the name of this lament, that this lament is actually entitled the bow, a strong weapon. Interestingly enough, the weapons appear over and over again in, in this lament itself. Shield twice, bow and sword are there. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Now, I am not arguing that this lament is a moral judgment against Saul and Jonathan. I don't think that's the case. Precisely because Jonathan is present. I think that would be an erroneous conclusion. I do think that Saul, leaning on his spear in chapter 1 verse 6, is meant to be a moral judgment against Saul. I think this is meant to teach the people the lesson that Samuel is attempting to teach the people, the lesson runs from the beginning of 1 Samuel all the way to the end of 2 Samuel, and right here in the middle we are reminded that not by might will men prevail. The mighty have fallen. Which mighty? All of them. <laughs> I mean, if we want to talk about Saul specifically, Saul leaned upon his spear. This is a common theme. Saul constantly trusted in the weapons of war over Yahweh. Saul, mighty and big. Saul, armor so large that David couldn't even wear it. It Swallowed him up. I mean, have you ever thought about that? We always think about the reason David didn't wear the armor. Is David just being courageous? And certainly he was. But you recognize that the armor was so big it literally engulfed him. He couldn't even move in it. What kind of man would wear armor such as that? A big man. Saul. Tall. Mighty. And fallen. But again, this lament is not really a moral judgment against Saul. It's a lesson for the people of Judah. It's a warning for the people of Judah and for us. Remember... Israel wanted a king like the king of the nations. They asked for that. That's how we got here, right? 2 Samuel 1 happens because of 1 Samuel 8. You got to follow the trajectory. Why are we lamenting over Saul? Not because God stooped down and said, listen, you know what you guys need? You guys need a king. And I'm going to go ahead and give you Saul. No, no. The people after the Lord faithfully, as he always had, rescued them by the hand of the judge Samuel. They respond, how? We want a king like the king of the nations. So we can be like the nations. Specifically so that king can go out and fight our own battles for us. You've got to read 2 Samuel 1 in light of that. But let's take it further back. How does 1 Samuel start? With a humble, barren woman In the midst of a dark day among a broken people. And she cries out for a seed. The Lord hears her prayer. Gives her a son Samuel. And the word of the Lord returns to the people of Israel through the prophet Samuel. Hannah responds to that with this song. And you know what the theme of that song goes like? Oh how the mighty have fallen. Just go read it. Oh, how the mighty have fallen, not by might shall man prevail. Listen, this lamentation is a reminder to the people of Israel that the mightiest man among them is still dead. A giant of a man, swifter than eagles, stronger than a lion, deader than a doornail. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. And of course by the way the counterpart to this lesson it really is another recurring theme in 1st and 2nd Samuel is this the battle belongs to the Lord. I've been saying that over and over again this last 2 years. The battle belongs to the Lord. It, it, by the way it's precisely because the battle belongs to the Lord that not by might shall man prevail. In fact, 1 Samuel 17, 47, we read in that account of David and Goliath, the Lord does not save with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's. Anyone notice, by the way, that this lamentation is completely secular? There's not one mention of Yahweh or the role of the Lord in this event. The emphasis is on Jonathan and Saul only, because that's where the people had placed their hope. However, right after this lament, in chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Samuel, the Lord reminds us that he has, he's going to, he has picked out a king after his own heart. His name's David. He's not Saul. He's not the mightiest man of all. In fact, he's the one who swam in Saul's armor, but he is a faithful man. Look at how chapter 2, verse 1 starts in 2 Samuel. It happened after this that David inquired of the Lord. It's not an accident that the historical narrative picks back up right there. Lamentation must be taught. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Then David inquires of the Lord. In fact if you go back to 1 Samuel 30 the Amalekites have taken the children the wives all the possession of David and his camp while they were out with the Philistines they've kidnapped them they've kidnapped David's family and all his people's family and so there's great mourning and grieving and what does David do in response no way I can't believe they did this let's grab our swords let's go get them is that what he says no it's not what does he say He says, priest, come. Let's inquire of the Lord. Would you have us go? It's your wife and children. What do you mean would you have us go? David asked the Lord. Well, what if the Lord had said, no, no, you leave them to me. You are not to go. I get the impression that David would have stayed now, praise God, he did not say no. He said, go get them. So David takes off with 600 men. He leaves 200 behind. They go and they absolutely slaughter the Amalekites, even though they're as numbered as the sands and the shores spread out amongst the land as they are. What is David leaning on in this? He's leaning on the fact that the battle belongs to the Lord. We can just do this over and over again in Samuel, First and Second Samuel specifically. We could do it over and over again. We could even ask, why did Saul get slain on Mount Gilboa? Listen, this is so fundamental to the entire biblical narrative. This permeates the entire biblical narrative. But friends, it needs to permeate our entire worldview. Do you recognize that every single battle belongs to the Lord? Like not just the ones in the Bible. In fact, no battle has ever ultimately depended on the might of men. And the problem is, we study them as though they have. Now, of course, to some extent, there is a legitimate place for understanding military tactics and so on. Please don't mishear or misinterpret what I'm trying to say that. But it is as long as we keep in mind the fact that the battle belongs to the Lord. You have to keep that in mind. So as we attempt to tie this together, church, this is why Him we proclaim. Because the sword devours, not by might shall man prevail. And every battle belongs to the Lord in literal battle, and how much more in the cosmic battle for the souls of God's people. Let me ask you, what hope is there in the sword against our enemy? Against Satan? Against our own sin? You remember, you stand as transgressors before a holy God, right? You stand on your own guilty, being enemies of God. What do you think you're going to do? You think you're going to wield the sword in such a way that you're going to cut out enough sin that God might accept you in his sight? Not by might shall man prevail, translated into nothing that my hands can do. You are helpless, utterly helpless to save yourself. There's no other God but one. No good work that you can do can bring you back into a right relationship with God. Remember what we're dealing with here. These are temporary, physical, prototypical types that point towards a deeper spiritual reality. Our problem is not the Philistines. It's not even politicians that we disagree with. It's not. Our problem is our own sin. And if we don't have one intervene, we are utterly lost. Choose the mightiest man there is living today. The problem is he's still full of sin and the sword will devour him. This is why Jesus we proclaim. Because the battle has always and the battle will always belong to the Lord. Listen, we are slow to believe this. We are quick to doubt. Speaking of myself here. We really need to focus on the reality that Jesus is the one who intercedes, who intervenes, and who interposes his own blood on our behalf. He came in the fullness of time to take upon himself our flesh and our weakness. Everything we are, he was apart from sin, fulfilling all righteousness. He obeyed his father even to the point of death on the cross so that he might bear our iniquity being crushed so that we might be made righteous. And this isn't a, a pie in the sky, you know. hope. Oh, but Jesus was raised from the dead to vindicate it. That's a historical fact, Jack. The sword could not devour him. He who refused to wield the sword allowed the sword to devour him so that we might be free from our sin, but the sword couldn't hold him. He was raised and there's no sword that could touch him. He's conquered death and we've been raised with him. Saints, do you see? We've been even now seated with him in the heavenly places. Can I ask you, what can the sword do for you? Why do we give so much mental energy to being anxious and fearful over man? What can man do? Kill the body? Listen, I don't mean to sound offensive here, but... Don't do any favors. You're going to send me to Jesus? That's the worst you got? There are worse things that could happen to me today. And yet here we are. We entertain fear and anxiety over all sorts of things. Yet Jesus is alive. He's standing right now interceding on our behalf. Here we are down here fretful about every news report, everything possible in the world. We can fret about all sorts of things. And Jesus is talking to the Father saying, they're mine. I know they're weak and they're fearful and they're anxious. They're mine though. They're mine. I purchased them. The reality is Jesus understood what we often, so often fail to grasp. And that is he understood that God saves not with sword and spear. Jesus refused to take up the sword. Jesus even refused to take up reviling when he was reviled. But instead what? Entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And now we are all called to follow his example. It's about time we said this in here. Church, do not fear. Listen, it is time for us to do some fear mortifying up in here. Some fear killing. Fear has no place in our hearts. Why? Because Jesus lives. Do not fear echoes throughout redemptive history. But we church in Christ have heard it the loudest. If Joshua was not to fear as he faced the onslaught of the armies of the Canaanites in the land. How much more we who stand in Christ forever. This is the lesson that the lament taught the people of Judah. It's the lesson that it teaches us. All the mighty have fallen, no matter how much blood or fat their own sword has devoured. In the end, their own sword eventually devoured them too. The mightiest men to have ever lived still died. The mightiest man alive right now will die. And the mightiest men that the future hold will have to be continually replaced and replaced by another and another until the Lord Jesus returns. So learn this lesson well. Not by might shall men prevail. Instead, praise God, he does not save with sword and spear because every battle belongs to the Lamb. It's what Revelation 5 says. Revelation 5 just takes 1 Samuel seventeen forty-seven and says it again. It belongs to the Lamb and he's won it. He's declared victory. He is worthy now of all our praise, honor, glory, and thanksgiving of his people. We don't take up sword and spear. We take up thanksgiving and praise. Rejoicing in the one who has conquered our sorry behinds. So if God's people should be taught to lament the death of Saul and Jonathan, how much more should we be taught to be reminded to rejoice over the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Saul and Jonathan's death, it provoked lament. It was a tragedy. But the grave could not hold the righteous one. Jesus did it. Not with a sword and spear, but with trust and obedience. He defeated our greatest enemy, our iniquity. His love disarmed us. His grace captured us. His mercy has forgiven us. His cross has removed our sin as far as the east is from the west. And his resurrection has brought his entire body into eternal life with God. Tallest man in the world, smallest man in the world, mightiest man in the world could do none of that. They're all fallen. There is only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And it's the name of Jesus Christ. Would you stand as we close together this morning? Please pray with me. Gracious Father, we confess that we are often overwhelmed with fear and anxiety about all sorts of things. Yet your word is clear. You did not withhold your own son. How will you withhold any good thing from us? The sword can devour all day long. And yet, there is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. For us, to live is to glorify Christ. To die is to be with him. Forgive us for how often we still fear men or our circumstances. Forgive us for how often we even still fear our own condition as though Christ's sacrifice is not sufficient. Lord, would you renew our minds now. Help us to sing with joy and thanksgiving for the salvation that your son has accomplished. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.